Well, happy Eagles Victory Sunday. All right, right? So a little love, right? You're here today. We're glad that you're here. We're all hoping. Most of us are hoping for the birds to fly. Um, even as a Giants fan, I can root for that and I can celebrate that. Before I jump into what uh, God's put on my heart to talk to you about today, just want to thank you for a moment. You know, over Christmas, we asked you as a church family to give to help kids, and you just knocked it out of the park. Hundreds of coats and gift cards where we were able to bless kids that are in foster system throughout the valley, kids that have been adopted, kids in need. We're just receiving grace from people they don't even know. And I got to witness firsthand some of the ways that people were blessed. Thank you for giving. And you gave, uh, many of you gave so that our staff and our global workers could have a Christmas gift. Thank you for doing that. Many of you give regularly, faithfully to the work of Faith Church. It takes a lot of cash to make this place happen on a weekly basis, like $66,000 a week, and you are faithful to give towards that, and we really appreciate it. Every dollar you give allows Faith Church to proclaim the hope of Christ, produce disciples of Christ, and unleash servants of Christ here in the valley and around the globe. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity. We're going to jump into uh, a continued conversation about difficulty. Last week started conversation about how life is difficult, as if I needed to remind you of that. Life is hard. Here's why we need to be reminded. Because sometimes we think that when we follow Jesus, that that gets us a pass. We don't have to face difficulty. Sometimes we think that following Jesus means that life will be easy, that we'll get our best wishes and dreams will all be fulfilled. And we need to be reminded that that's not what Jesus said at all. In fact, he said, in this world you will have trouble. Not you might, not you may, you will have trouble. So what do we do as Christians when we face hardship and difficulty? That's what we're talking about. And it's really about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus that he came, lived, died, he faced a difficult life, and he rose again. And one day he's going to return to make everything right and new. And that's what our hope is. Our hope is that this is just, we're just passing through this season. It's a short season compared to eternity. And Jesus is going to make everything right and good one day. So maybe you're in a particularly difficult season. If you're in a difficult season and someone says to you, the end is near, what do you think? How do you feel when someone says, the end is near? So some of you wackos do this tough mutter thing, or Spartan race, or marathon. You run 26 miles, which is like beating your head against the wall for 26 miles. When someone along that track, if you're in a tough mutter and you're jumping over rocks and under razor wire and through flames and... You're on a marathon, just running, 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 running. When somebody on the sideline says to you, the end is near, what do you think and feel? I mean, there's something that's of a relief, right? You're like, okay, the end is near. It's, it's coming close. All this work, all this energy, all this pain, this exhaustion, it's coming to an end. It's going to finish soon. When someone yells to you from the sideline, the end is near, and you hear that and you feel relieved, is it intended that you stop, throw in the towel, give up, sit on the ground in that moment, or is it intended to cheer you on and say, keep going? 
Fight to the finish. Don't throw in the towel. Don't coast. Go. Lay it on the field. Put it all down. Knowing that when you get to the end, when you lay it on the field, put it all down, go all the way, the joy of victory will be even sweeter when you hear the end is near. It is not a time to coast. So if you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Peter 4, where Peter says the end is near. So turn there, 1 Peter 4, electronic paper, whatever you do. Just following along helps you learn. And so 1 Peter's at the end of your Bible. Just turn back a couple pages, tracking with Peter. And he says this statement, the end of all things is near. That's 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. When you hear that, why does he say it? What does he mean? Look at the overall context of Peter's letter. He's trying to encourage people. He wants to encourage specifically Christians, people that are following Jesus. He's encouraging people that have put their faith in Christ. said, take my sin and shame, Jesus. Take it from me. Forgive me for my sins. Enter my heart. And when Jesus enters your heart, his intention is to begin to change you, make you new, change your appetites and attitudes and your actions. He wants us to be wholly devoted to Him, which is not some pious language, but that we're fully in, that we're all in with Him, for Him to take over, to rule and reign, and change us from the inside out. But it's going to be hard. You're going to face difficulty. There's going to be mistreatment that you're going to face. Sometimes being a Christian is even harder because you're listening to God and obeying Him, and other people are saying different things it's different and hard and difficult, but he wants you to be wholly devoted to him in a magnetic way that others would see Jesus is alive when they look at you. That's his point in his overall context. So when Peter says the end of all things is near, he's encouraging you to stay in the fight, to stay in it, not give up. But he's also making a really important theological point that I want to dig into for just a moment with you before we get really practical. He's making an interesting theological point. Remember, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus. He saw Jesus' miracles. He watched Jesus be flogged, nailed to a cross. He experienced, watched firsthand the resurrection of Christ. But he also watched the ascension of Christ, which is something we don't talk about much. But Jesus walked bodily on this earth. And then when he finished his role here on earth, he ascended back to God, which is pretty interesting, which means he went back up to God right in front of people's eyes. Crazy to think of. But if you want, side note, I'm talking fast. Did you notice? Side note, if you want a page-turner part of the Bible that you're going to read and go, what's next, what's next, what's next, read the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament is a page turn. It gives you all this crazy stories about how God is at work in the lives of real people. Acts chapter 1 says something interesting. Peter and the disciples, firsthand eyewitness accounts to this, they're watching Jesus go back to God. They're watching it happen before their eyes. And an angel, two angels, come to them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, don't turn there, but just listen. This angel say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? Like you just watching your friend go up. Of course we're all standing looking up in the sky because this never happens. Why are you standing there looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 
He's going up, and he's going to come back. Now, you might hear that and go crazy, but Peter, firsthand experience to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again for three days, and Peter goes, no way. But then he sees it actually happen, so he believes. Same thing happens when Jesus says, I'm going to come, go, I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to return, and he sees him go up. What do you think? He believes and knows when God says he's going to go up and come back the same way, Peter goes, I got you, I believe you, because when you say something, it always comes true. And when now, 20 years later, people are facing difficulty, Peter says to them, guys, the end of all things is near, with that perspective on his mind, because he watched him go up and he said he's going to come back and it will happen. But just to take this another step further, because I'm kind of a realist and I'm going, okay, Peter, you said that 2,000 years ago. If someone was cheering me on in a marathon like I would ever run one, but if I was running a marathon and someone said the end is near and then I had to run for 2,000 more years, what does that mean? Why would you say the end is near and then 2,000 years go on? What's going on with that? Let me explain it a little bit deeper and then we'll get practical. Imagine that God wrote a story and the story that he wrote is called God is Love. It's a book. It's unfolding. God is love. And imagine your name, your story, your life, your circumstances are included in his story, in his book of love that he's writing. If that was true, you'd want to open up the cover and look at the table of contents. You'd want to flip through to find out where you are in the story, right? So you open up the table of contents and you start to read. And the first chapter in the table of contents in God's book called God is Love is about God. Chapter 1, God. And it talks about how God is all-knowing and all-powerful, everywhere present. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they share love together forever. They never were invented. They never started. They have no end. This crazy, mind-blowing, all-powerful God exists in love together forever, not needing anything or anyone but themselves. But God, in his love, decides, chapter 2, to create. Because what's love without sharing it? He doesn't have to do it, decides, okay, I'm going to make planets and stars, valleys and mountains. I'm going to make streams and plants and animals. And the pinnacle of my creation is going to be women and men, sons and daughters that are created in my image. To take care of my planet, I'm going to make create people, and I will love them always, eternally. Chapter 3 is choice. You see, love is meant to be shared, but love also has to be a choice. It's never forced. Love can never be forced, or it is not love. So God says, I love you. I will make you. In my image, you will take care of my world. You could choose to love me or reject me, choose to follow me or ignore me. I'll give you that choice. Men and women from then till now have made the choice, our choice, which is chapter 4, sin and promise. That Adam and Eve were real people, just like you and me, and rather than choosing to love God, they rejected God, they disobeyed God, they ignored God, and that the Bible calls sin. And sin is why we face difficulty, why we face disease, why we face death. But God is love, and he wants to provide for us a rescuer, a redeemer who's going to 
take care of this, fix this problem, solve this issue, because he loves us too much to leave us in death and destruction and difficulty, which leads to chapter 5. He promises a Savior to come, and then Jesus shows up. Jesus comes, and he's God's one and only Son. He lives to love God perfectly. Every day of his life, he honors God. He doesn't rebel, follows him wholeheartedly, wholly in everything he does. He also loves his neighbor perfectly, but dies innocently, right? Why did Jesus die? Because God is just. He can't look at the other way and go, well, I'll just pretend like you rebels didn't do that. No, he's just in all his ways. Someone's got to pay the price of this rebellion So he pours that price out, the wrath of God, on Jesus, his perfect son, who then rises again from the dead, proves he's God, to pay the way and provide a way to victory for all who trust in him. And he rises again and ascends back to God the Father, to a bunch of eyewitnesses like Peter who wrote this book, that Jesus comes. Which leads to chapter 6. I think the chapter we're in now, called Holy Magnetic. The spot that if you were going to flip open the book and find yourself, it would be this spot, Holy Magnetic, that God has promised a son, sent his son, and now we hear this good news about Jesus, that he loves you, that he died for you, that he rose again, that all who trust in him will be changed, forgiven, set free from their sin and shame. Now we live, and that news is spreading. It's intended to go inside our hearts and change people, but you have a choice to accept that or not. For those of us who have accepted it, we are now to live holy, magnetic lives. Lives of devotion to Jesus. Lives where we share the love of Jesus with other people, where we serve other people, where we care about other people. And we don't know how long this chapter will be, this holy, magnetic time where God wants the world, every people group, to hear, every child, every person to hear this good news and be able to choose yes or no. Because the last chapter, chapter 7, is judgment restoration. That God is just. He can't just look the other way. He will judge the world. And you want to know how he'll judge the world? I'll oversimplify. Do you accept me or do you reject me? Do you love me or do you ignore me? Will you accept my son as a gift that I've given you that paid your tab or will you ignore it? He'll judge the world by that standard. Are you for me or are you against me? And then He will fully restore this place. Jesus will make everything new. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So this is what's in Peter's mind. When when Peter says to the disciples then, and to you as a follower of Christ today, or maybe someone who's seeking to know more about Jesus today, when he says the end is near, this wide angle is what's on his mind. And he knows that we're in this chapter And this chapter may have many pages and many years and many hundreds of years, but the next chapter is what? Our God is just in all his ways, and he's going to make everything new. So when he says to his disciples then and to us today, the end is near, he's speaking from this wide-angle lens and saying the next thing to come is judgment and restoration. That's got to be on your mind You have to think about that, he's saying to him. Now let me get super practical. What what does this all mean? How how do we live with this? If this is how we should live, if this is true, the end is near, do we just coast? Do we just say, I'm going to live the whatever way I want to live? I'm going to do whatever I want? No, look what he says. Back to 1 Peter 4, 7. 
the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so you may pray. It's very practical. He's saying stay alert, stay connected to God. Because when, when you look around our world, you turn on the television, turn on the radio, look on the internet, nobody's talking about God, relatively speaking. Everyone's just living their lives, doing their thing, job to job, buy things, sell things, get married, have kids, picket fence, suffer, you know, go ups and downs, lefts and rights, but people aren't talking about the greatest reality of the universe, which is God is love, and He's going to return to make everything right. Nobody's talking about that, so as Christ followers, we fall into the trap of ignoring the greatest reality of the universe, who is God, and His plan, and His purpose. He's saying, no, stay alert to that. Be sober. Don't be drunk on thinking all these pleasures and treasures are going to make everything okay. They might make you feel okay for a season, but they're going to end, and then what? He says, be sober, alert, so that you can pray. And let's just be honest about praying. Praying's not something spiritual you do. It's not something you do in church. It's just talking to God. It's just telling Him what you're thinking and feeling. It's listening to Him and saying, what do you have to say for me? I'm listening. It's a conversation where He wants to be connected with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to understand your ups and downs and help you through your ups and downs, navigating your feelings. He's saying, stay alert, stay connected to God. The end is near. Be awake, not fearful, connected to God. It's why I just had this sense over the last number of weeks as a congregation, we need to be together to praise God and to pray more often. So this Tuesday night, I told you about this last week, this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, if you're free, our band is going to lead us in worship, and we're going to pray together. So we're going to worship God together and pray together and ask for God's grace upon us as we head in to this new year, love for you to join us if you're able to this Tuesday night. Peter goes on in verse 8 to say, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is near. Stay connected to God. Awake to who He is and what He's doing. And then he says here, love and serve each other. Love one another. And the Bible says it over and over again, love one another. And he uses this phrase, love covers over a multitude of sins because he gets that within our families, within our churches, we hurt each other. We do the wrong thing. We have bitterness and unforgiveness and pain against one another. We hold each other accountable and we can be so cruel to one another. And he's saying, wait, love each other. Love covers over all of that. If you would just love each other, he says, be hospitable to one another. Just open up your hearts, open up your hands, open up your homes to each other. Share in each other's lives. You're so isolated, so independent, doing your own thing. The end is near. Stay connected to God. 
love and stay connected to one another and serve. Oh, serve yourself, does he say? Use whatever gifts you have, whatever talents and abilities you have to pad your resume, pad your 401k, pad your bank account, fill your own life with good things. No, he says use whatever gifts you have, whether it's speaking or serving, to serve others, to meet the needs of others, because that's what brings glory to God and shows people that God is alive and not dead. It's very practical. Now, I have to confess to you, I kind of do this every once in a while. Uh, I fall asleep when I'm driving. Does that make you nervous? It makes my wife nervous. She hates it because I'm a classic guy that wants to drive all the time, but I struggle to stay awake when I'm driving. And it's kind of a mixture of things. Part of it is whenever I sit down, I fall asleep. Like I just, I, my motor runs fast. Did you ever notice that? I, I'm, I'm fast all the time. So when I sit down in a car or in a chair, I'm going to fall asleep. Please don't send me notes about vitamins I need to take. And I'm not a narcoleptic. I don't want to know about your doctor. I just fall asleep really easy. And in a car, there's something about the motion, and there's something about I'm bored. Like, I've been doing this for 20-plus years. Here we go, down Cedar Crest to 78. It's so boring. So why not catch a few Zs? This bothers my family greatly. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's really funny, especially because I think that's the way I walk in my life with Jesus. I fall asleep. I think the longer I'm in a relationship with Jesus, I find myself getting sleepier and finding moments where I'm bored. Oh, I've heard this message. I've read this passage. I've experienced this joy. I know I should be alert. I know I should be awake. I know that if I fall asleep, I could hurt myself, and I certainly could hurt others. But there's something about the difficulties of life, how hard it gets sometimes, that I just want to sit down and fall asleep and check out. And I do that in my Christian walk, and you do that in your Christian walk. And sometimes I just pull the car over and park it for a while. I'll park my faith for a while and say, I don't need that. Sometimes I'll actually get off the on-ramp and turn around and go the opposite direction and behave in the complete opposite way when God's design for me is to be at the wheel, driving forward and alert, sober to the fact that my feelings lie to me, sober to the fact that the pleasures and treasures that, that grab my eyes and attention and the things that feel good for a moment don't last that he has a design for my life, for the protection of myself and the protection of other people, for the joy of myself and the joy of other people. I am to be engaged in this walk of faith in such a real way that I can change other people's destiny by how I live and how I drive. But when I just say, ah, Jesus, he's not going to come back. Oh, thanks for saving me. I'm curious about you. Oh, there's been good moments and bad moments. And I'll come to church maybe once in a while. And I fall asleep 
sideline myself or go backwards the other way, I fail to see that it's designed for me is to live in such a holy magnetic way that I change the course of other people's lives because of how I live and how I love and how I serve. Well, there's danger. Peter goes on in verse 12, and this may sound discouraging, but it's really encouraging. He says in verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. He's saying there's something about the difficulties of life that show that we participate with Jesus. I'll explain it this way. With sports fans, if you say you're a sport fan of a particular team and they are going through a difficult season and you stop being a fan, were you ever really a fan? When your team doesn't do as well as you want them to do, or maybe they have a horrible season, <clears throat> Giants, uh, and you give up on them and you become an Eagles fan, just joking. <laughs> Doesn't that separate the true from the false? Difficulty always separates the true from the false. So when you, son of God, daughter of God, follower of God, go through difficulty, when it's hard, when it's boring, when you don't have that love and feeling, when you're not interested anymore, or you'd rather turn around and go the other way, what does that say about you? You see, when difficulty comes, he's saying, talk to God. God will speak and listen. When difficulty comes, love people. Serve people, not yourself. When difficulty comes, Instead of acting like everyone else, act like Jesus, our victor, who went through all of these things too and rose again from it, and the victory is real and sure when people see you in the tough mutter of life. When the people in your office, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, see you running the marathon, going through the difficulty, do they see Jesus, because they're watching. They notice when they see you. Do you go through difficulty like everyone else? Or do you go through difficulty like Jesus is alive? That Jesus is real. Do they see something different in you? Because the end of all things is nearer today than it was yesterday, and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's going to say that today on television. Nobody's going to talk to you about the fact that God is the greatest reality. His story of love is what is most important. That's not what you're going to hear 99.9% of the time this week. Is it true or not true? Are you his or not his? See, you can 
Talk to him and he listens and he will empower you. You can love and serve other people and not yourself. You can be awake and sober with eyes open to what's really going on. You can be magnetic so that other people live because you speak and show them the love of Christ. So what do you do? You ask God to help you. You don't get overwhelmed. You don't get afraid that the end is near. You don't throw in the towel. You don't be anxious. You talk to God wherever you are on this journey. Oh, God, help me to stay in the race. God, help me. I turned around and drove the opposite direction. Forgive me. I repent of that. Now I will turn and follow you. God, I'm pulled over on the side of the road. I've given up. God, I'm acting like I'm driving the Christian life, but I'm really asleep at the wheel. But would you awaken me? Change me. Fill my eyes with hope, my hands with help. Allow me to love and serve people that others would see you in me and be changed to the end that you would be glorified and the family of God would grow. That's why I'm here. And while I am here, I will live with all my might. I love Latin, carpe diem. You know that phrase, carpe diem, seize the day? I added another phrase, corum deo, which means before the face of God. Seize the day before the face of God, and you will stay in the fight and win. Let's pray. God, this is an epic story. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a cartoon. This is life and death reality that very few people are willing to lean into. The group of people here today, online, in the chapel, in the center, are leaning into some of this stuff, thinking about hard topics. Exercise our minds. Awaken our spirits. Sober us up. We have gotten high and drunk on all kinds of pleasures and all kinds of treasures around us. We need to be detoxed. And it will be hard, but you are real, and eternity is long. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we want to talk to you and listen to you. We want to love and serve other people. We want to be awake and make a difference in this world. Help us. We need you. Jesus, please help us to take one step today to honor you, knowing you'll be faithful. You'll be faithful. You will never let us go. I pray all of this in the name of our victor, Jesus Christ. Amen.